Good morning. And grab my uh, stand over here. So, see you all. Welcome to Kalui Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us. Congratulations to the graduates. Um, you are societal-wise uh, considered an adult here now in our country. So. Have fun. Uh, any speeding tickets you get from this point on, I have no doubt will be your responsibility, not moms and dads, right? No, I'm kidding. Sort of. Um, so we'll be in Genesis 20 today while you flip there. Let me give you a few announcements. Uh, first, Jeff and Rita, this is their last Sunday. Jeff and Rita, would you please wave? They're over here on my right, your left. It's their last Sunday with us. Yes, yes. Okay. Don't forget to, uh, they're moving to the mainland, so take some time, love on them before they leave. I'll be calling them up after service, and you'll get the chance. Uh, next week is also Lord's Supper. So Lord's Supper, we're partaking of it next week, so prepare, you got a week, prepare your hearts, prepare your minds, prepare yourselves to, of the awesome privilege we get to partake actually in the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. We often, I said in a previous sermon, we often invite, we make a big deal of invite and invite you to come to Christ, but we forget the awesome privilege of, or fact that we're even invited, sinners by nature, are even invited into the presence of the Lord, into the table of the Lord. So uh, prepare for that awesome time as a family we get to do. And then to that end, also Family Fellowship Night this Wednesday. Uh, bring some food for yourself, some, some stuff. We'll just eat together, share a meal together, break open the Word, bring your children, everybody just together. It's fun, and we'll enjoy that time together. The title of my sermon is The Gospel Applied to Abraham. The Gospel Applied to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12 was the gospel according to Abraham. And in 20, we're going to see the gospel applied to Abraham. A very appropriate song we sing. Marvelous grace. Wonderful grace. Grace that can pardon and cleanse within. And this passage is all about grace, the grace of God. Where have we been? If you're first time joining us, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis, right? So we've been marching from beginning to end, and we're going to cover the whole book of Genesis, all of it. So we are almost at the halfway point in chapter 20. Uh, within the past three weeks, we saw last week immediately, we saw Sodom and Gomorrah right? Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the term hail, fire, and brimstone preaching comes from that passage of Scripture. Uh, we saw that the sin of Sodom was appalling, but also very common to our churches. The love of prosperous ease and comfort, the neglect of the poor and needy, and many other things. And so God judged them, which would become a precursor to the final judgment that's to come. We saw the week before that, the promise of God to Sarah, is anything too hard for God? Is anything too hard for God? She's 100 years old. He's 100 years old. Abraham's 100. She's 99. Uh, as good as dead is how she describes herself. And yet God says, you're going to have a child. 
And she laughs at God, laughs at the problem, a scornful, kind of mocking laugh. What? Are you serious? Okay. Right? A disbelieving laugh. And God says, actually, that's going to be the name of your son, Laughter, Isaac. And you're going to have him in about a year. Is anything too hard for God? And then we saw the nature of the covenants and how they work together, the Abrahamic covenant and its impact on doctrines. You should be having uh, some slides up here in a little bit. But we saw Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Abrahamic covenant. And now we're going to see that just working out. So scripture is, is seeing, is progressing, is moving towards this drama of redemption that is ultimately, ultimately going to point to who? To Jesus, right? It's ultimately all the stage, the theater is being set, and the key player and a couple thousand years is going to walk onto the stage, and it's all going to point to Jesus, and all of it, will, will, the lights will turn on, and everybody will say, ah, that's what that was. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would believe me. If you were God's children, you would believe me because Moses wrote of me. And so what we've been doing is walking through and seeing, where did Moses write of Jesus? Jesus is here somewhere without being named. So we've been looking. And so we're going to see a large, another large movement in the drama of redemption this morning. What's that large movement? Here's the big idea. I'll give it to you, and then I'll give you the points. We'll read the passage. We'll get rolling. Here's the big idea this morning of this passage. God's covenant curses. You remember the the covenant of Abraham. I'm going to bless you and you. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. This is what's going to happen in our passage. And the big idea is that God's covenant curses can be averted by the prayers of his prophets. I'm going to flesh all that out. The covenant curse of God can be averted by the prayers of his prophet. We're going to see this in three passages or three stages. Abraham's deception, Abimelech's dream, and an amazing deliverance. We'll walk through the whole chapter. Let's read, and we'll get rolling. From there, Genesis 20, verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man, because the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. 
Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, may we see your lavish grace towards sinners in this passage. Father, may we see our wicked estate that needs this grace. Father, we are all like... Abraham, we are all like Abimelech in need of your divine intervention to rescue us from ourselves. So Lord, I pray this morning this would be true. I pray that we would see your glory, your beauty, your faithfulness to keep your promises and that we would trust our lives on them. I ask that you would do this for your name and your glory. Amen. All right. The gospel applied to Abraham, Abraham's deception. Number one, Abraham's deception. What was his deception, right? So he's traveling, and he comes to this town, and he, what does he say? He's afraid they're going to kill him because we learn earlier in the narrative, Genesis 12, that his wife, Sarah, is top model. All right? His wife, Sarah, is, uh, she, even at the age of 75, is apparently very, she ages well, okay? So, you know, I, I see some Asians sometimes, and I'm like, oh, man, this person must be like, you know, 20, 25. Hey, how old are you? I'm 54. What? Right? Okay, so maybe that was Sarah. I don't know, okay? Like, aged well, okay? She is very, very beautiful. Um, it could be because of her beauty. It could be because they wanted a part of Abraham's wealth. In any case, he thought the king of this town, of this city, was going to kill him and take his wife as his own, all right? Because then, back then, even pagan, non-God-fearers knew that adultery was sin, knew that adultery was awful and heinous, but a lot like Lot with the twisted moral compass, they'd say, you know what, I'm not going to sleep with this man's wife because that's wrong. I'll kill him so that they're not husband and wife anymore, and I'll take the wife much better. So Abraham says she is my sister. This is shocking, isn't it? It's shocking when anybody says it. Well, which part's shocking? The fact that he says she's my sister, or the fact that it's Abraham who's saying it. 
Isn't it so much more painful when we see our leaders, our heroes, those whom we have looked up to, men of faith? Abraham's called the friend of God. He, he just interceded on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah and was able to save Lot. He received the promise of God, this massive promise, I'm going to make of you a great nation. He's spoken with God. And yet it's Abraham who's falling into this grotesque sin that hasn't overtaken him once. Oh yeah, he just struggles. We all struggle twice. We actually get the idea that he's been doing this for a long time. In verse 13, he says, in every place we go, this is what I've asked her, tell them that I'm your brother. This has been a common, you could say, besetting sin, a repetitive sin in the life of Abraham, the faithful. Abraham responds to this deception when he's called out on it as a lie by a unbelieving. So we have faithful, we could call him a Christian today. We have faithful leader Abraham, father of all the children of faith. Faithful Abraham lying. And then unbeliever King Abimelech, pagan, calling him out on it. And what does Abraham do? He tries to cover up his lie saying, well, technically, it's not a lie. He appeals to a technicality. Technically, she is my sister. She's my half-sister. This is called a distortion. In America, we do this a lot. Distortion is a type of lying. It's a type of lying where you only tell certain portions of the truth in order to paint a different picture of reality. It's lying. Because the intent is to deceive, is to paint a different picture. It is a distortion of the truth. It's wicked and it's opposed to the truth. It is by nature a twisting of the truth such that you utilize the truth itself to deceive. We do this in America all the time. Not only do we distort truth, we blatantly lie or we exaggerate the truth. This type of lying, especially distortion, why is it so wicked and awful, especially among the, the faithful, the people of God? Why is it so awful? Because it's the exact type of lying that Satan used in the garden and false teachers used to deceive. And this ought not to be characteristic of those whose master they claim is the way, the truth, and the life. It assaults the very truth itself. We do this with uh, how much can you bench? Oh, about 275. In reality, I don't know, I've probably been like 200 pounds, right? right? How much can we do it? Little white lies that are insignificant and trivial. We do it with important things or things as they get a little bit closer to home. Maybe, do I look fat in this dress or in these clothes? Right? Oh, self-preservation or peace, right? What am I going to go with, right? We lie with um, other things. We lie on our taxes. 
We lie on the reality of how, hey, I'm going to call you back in five minutes. Or how's this one? Yeah, I'll be there this weekend. And when it gets to intense things, we lie. As in Nazi Germany. They're hiding Jews in your house and they come banging on your door. Do you have any Jews here? Do you lie or do you tell the truth? Is it ever okay? Good questions that we won't entertain in this sermon. But this is pervasive in our culture. We do this all the time. We lie to our children. We, we do these things almost instinctively and they learn it actually from us. This is wicked. It's wicked, and this is what Abraham does. Other forms, as I said, can be exaggeration, slander, bearing false witness. Just slander is saying things that are untrue about people. You are slandering their reputation. You are, and you might say, it's true. It is a perspective of the truth that is slanderous and does not honor the image of God in that person, and it is wicked. Exaggeration. And just outright lying. We lie so much, we have people created whose job it is to stop people from lying. We call those police officers. <laughs> I, I, there's people I could talk to, and you would have, you know, uh, this is your car? Yes. Have you let anybody borrow it lately? No. Anything? Nobody's using it, stolen it, been inside it for how long? Oh, a couple of days. Whose bag is that? That's mine. What's in the bag? I can smell it. It's emanating from the car. We call it potpourri. Oh, you know, actually, that bag, that's not my bag. I, I, th I thought that was a different bag. <laughs> Whose bag is it? I don't know. <laughs> it just came. It just appeared in my car. Okay. okay, I have people so, so much so that you have them on video. You're watching them taking something off a rack and sticking it in their bag and leaving. This, this you? I, it, I don't know who that is. <laughs> I, I, I don't remember that officer, right? It's just, this is just innate in children whose father is the father of all lies. And we struggle with this even after we come to faith in Christ. It's important to see in this also, sin's never isolated. Notice this in the passage. Our sin is never isolated. Abraham Lincoln said, no man has a good enough... Was it Abraham Lincoln? Yeah. Abraham Lincoln said, no man has a good enough memory to be a successful liar. Eventually, it's going to catch yourself. And that truth. Sin's not isolated. Rather, it's like a big giant black hole or a whirlpool that everything around it, it starts to suck in to it. It's like a big black, it just sucks in others, sometimes even the innocent. Abraham led his own wife. He is supposed to be her covenant head, her leader, her protector, her, her keeper, and he instead leads her into this sin with him. And he says, this saying, we read it right here, this is the kindness you must do to me in every place we go. Say that. This is how we would say this in today's terms. If you love me, you're going to say that. Do it like this. If you love me, 
you'll say, he's my brother. It sucks in the innocent. And then it even has effects on Abimelech. Pagan, minding his own business as of now, Abimelech comes and it now has effects on Abimelech, but not just on Abimelech, on his household. Because of an account of Abraham's lie, all of the household, the wives, the servants, everybody, God had closed up their wombs because of Abraham and his lie and what he was doing. Now God, in the process, was protecting his promise because in chapter 21, when Isaac is born, the writer wants everybody to know this is not Abimelech's child. It's impossible. He didn't touch her, and all their wombs were closed. It's not Abimelech's child. God's also protecting his promise because Abraham decided to take things into his own hands. The father of faith acting very faithless. So what do you desire? If you desire to overcome a pattern of lying, what do you do? Abraham? It starts with trusting the truth of the gospel. That's where it has to start. It starts with trusting the truth, the promises of God. Abraham failed to believe the promises of God. What were the promises of God? I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a great nation. If God is for you, who can be against you? Abraham didn't believe it in that moment. It starts with believing the promises of God in Christ. Your identity is now hidden with Christ in God. You are righteous by faith. The same promise to Abraham through Christ now applies to you. And you believe the promises that you're no longer defined by your sin, your life is defined by the very righteousness of Christ. And on those bases, you begin to put away all false speech, all efforts to commend yourself, to save yourself, to be and get ahead in life. And you become, as John says, a child of the light. You walk in light. Light, by its very nature, reveals, reveals, reveals Lying and sin, by its very nature, conceals, distorts. It is antithetical to walking in the light. And we saw at root of lying, or of Abraham's lie, was a failure to trust in God's promises. A failure to believe that God, maybe he isn't for my good. It's a lesson for really all of our sin struggles here, whether lying or anything else. What's the lesson? Be mindful of those sins that you have been overcome by in the past, especially. This is Abraham's first time. Be mindful of the sins that have overcome you in the past. And if you ever get to the point where you think, I'm so strong, I've grown so much that this sin, not a struggle for me, then take heed, friend. In that moment, take heed lest you fall like Abraham. As awful as this is, we all should receive encouragement from him, though, right? We should all receive encouragement because Abraham, Abraham is called righteous. 
The Bible looks back and commends him as a whole, his whole character of life and trusting in the Lord. The Bible commends him. We should all find encouragement of this. Because many of us are like Abraham. Maybe you feel like, like Abraham, the plan backfired. Like, oh, shoot, he just took my wife, man. I, didn't, I just didn't want him to kill me. I didn't want him to take you. Maybe I've screwed up such that God's promises will, for me will not come to pass. Such is the beauty of faith. It unites us to God. It reminds us that in Him, He is our righteousness. And even when our faith wavers, He never does. Amen. When I am faithless, God is faithful. Scripture says he will never permit the righteous to be moved. Abraham's deception does not nullify God's promises of good towards him. Number two, Abimelech's dream. This is intense. So a divine intervention happens because Abraham lies. God's not going to let his promise fall. And so God divinely intervenes of his own accord. He appears to Abimelech in a dream. And basically... How would you like this dream? Word from God, not a greetings, grace and peace to you. Fear not. You're a dead man. <laughs> you are a dead man because the woman you have is another man's wife. Abimelech appeals to his innocence and ignorance. I'm innocent because I was ignorant. That's not the way God sees it. God's response, this is striking. Check this out. God's response is not that Abimelech was so honest and full of integrity that he didn't sin. That's what Abimelech's saying. It's not my fault. I didn't know. He said she was, she said he is my brother. It's not my fault. I didn't know. In the integrity of my heart, I did this. That's not the way God sees it. God says, rather, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. But Why? Because I kept you from sinning against me. It's not that you're righteous, Abimelech. It's you would have if you could have, but why didn't you? Because I kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Abimelech told a little lie, too. I kept you from sinning against me. You remember the narrative of Noah. The thoughts and intentions of man's heart was only evil continually. And notice God doesn't say, oh, you know what, you're right, and had you slept with her, you wouldn't have sinned against me. No. Even though he didn't know, God would have held him responsible. Why? Probably because he already had wives. Rather, he didn't sin. He was, in, he was of integrity because God kept him from sinning against me. Now, why is that shocking? Does that shock you? That phrase should shock every one of us because here's what happens. Here's how we view suffering or sin. We say, but we have free will. We spoke about this in Noah. But they have free will. Abimelech has a free will. 
God will not infringe upon the free will of men. Is that what this text says? Did Abraham of his free will, oh, sorry, Abimelech of his free will, not touch Sarah? Or was his will infringed upon by something higher? If you read the text, I kept you from sinning against me. Why didn't you sin? Because your own free will would have led you to sin. Why didn't you? Because I kept you from sinning. Therefore, therefore, I did not let you touch her. God stops even unbelievers from sinning when he pleases because he's God. And he also stirs up unbelievers to do his will when he pleases because he's God. Check this out, Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to go and build the temple in Jerusalem. God working on the heart of an unbelieving king to do and accomplish all that he pleases. This is what the scriptures say God does. Because God accomplishes all of his purposes. Acts 4, 27 to 28. Hear this. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. He names names, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, check this out, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Herod was willing, Pontius Pilate was willing, the Gentiles were willing, the people of Israel were willing, they were exercising their will, but their free will was not ultimate. They were doing whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. This is the reality of the Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart, whether it be Cyrus, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Abimelech, Barack Obama, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. We see God's sovereignty over the free will of man. So when you read of torture at the hands of the Islamic State and wickedness and various places taking place throughout the world, we aren't getting God off the hook when we say, well, why is, why is this happening? Well, because they have free will, as if God couldn't stop it. We're not getting God off the hook. That's a non-answer, and it's a non-biblical answer. Because he could stop it if he willed. That's the point. I kept you from sinning against me. God's not impotent to stop suffering. That's the whole point of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, some escaped the sword. By faith, some died and were stoned and were sawn in two. Free will is a non-answer because the scriptures teach by birth our wills are enslaved to sin. 
So if suffering is happening, if suffering is taking place, it's not because God is impotent. It's because God is choosing by his own wisdom and grace and purposes, which we don't always know. He is choosing in that moment not to stop it. He's choosing because he's got a greater purpose in mind than what ours can even conceive. This is going to be the overarching message of Joseph in the end of Genesis. What you meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about a deliverance. God is always working more than we can ever imagine. Think about your suffering. Think about your sickness. Think about whatever it is, persecution or pain that you're experiencing. Isn't it so much greater to know that your pain is in the hand of a loving Father who knows what's good for you? And it's not that he's powerless to stop it. It's that he has a purpose in it. And we know because of Jesus that purpose is for your good. Trust him. Wait on the Lord. Wait. So God tells Abimelech. He gives him a command, a promise, and a warning. The command, return the man's wife because he's a prophet so that he will pray for you and you will live. In other words, you want to live? Because right now you're a dead man. If you want to live, if you value your life, you will return his wife because he's going to pray for you so that you'll live. You see the irony? The one who sinned against Abimelech, Abraham, was actually going to be the one that God was going to use as the agent of his restoration. If you were Abimelech, would you want to talk to Abraham? He just, he shut the womb of all the people in your house. You're going to die because of this man, and I'll have to ask him to pray for me because he's going to heal me? The irony is thick. Also notice this. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing. What does God call Abraham? A prophet. This is important. Why is it important? This is the first mention of the word prophet in the Bible. The very first one. First mention, first time the word prophet comes into play, and it's not going to leave. This is important. God calls unrighteous or lying, coward Abraham my prophet. That should give anybody who desires to be in ministry or who is in ministry or even any believer so much joy. He's going to call Abraham, this screw-up, my prophet. Yep, and, and I'm going to heal you through that guy. <laughs> this, is, this is awesome for me. This is great news because I feel like I screw up all the time. And God says, that's my prophet. This gives all of us hope. God can use a crooked stick to make a straight line. He often does. And he's going to use Abraham to heal and pray for Abimelech. This also brings us hope in other ways. Who have you sinned against in your life? Anybody ever, you guys ever lie to anybody in here and hurt them? Yeah? Who is that person you have sinned against in your life? You might be tempted to think, man, I have totally burned that bridge. I've totally sinned against this person. They hate me. They have every reason to hate me. I have disdained the testimony, the witness of Jesus Christ. 
you feel this guilt, be encouraged. Be encouraged. God often uses individuals just like you. In the lives of people that you've hurt to point them to Jesus. To point them to Jesus. And he looks at you, sinful, mess up, you. That's my child. That's my ambassador. The irony runs both ways. He's going to use Abraham as an agent to heal Abimelech, and he's going to use Abimelech as an agent to rebuke Abraham. Abimelech's going to lay it on. You guys heard that, that section. Why did you do this thing to me? What were you thinking? He's going to use Abimelech, sinful Abimelech, to rebuke his prophet. Praise God, he uses sinful people, sometimes even unbelievers, to make us more like Jesus. And in number three, we see an amazing deliverance. This is where the gospel comes and is applied to Abraham. An amazing deliverance. After he rebukes Abraham, what does Abimelech do? What does Abraham deserve? Chapter 12, in Egypt, when Abraham did this, the Pharaoh rebuked him and kicked him out of the land. Get out of here. Don't come back because of what you've done. That's what Abraham deserves to die. Many people have suffered for his sin. And he lied, even worse, in representing God. But instead, after the rebuke, after the word from Abimelech, Abimelech does something astonishing. He gives Abraham cattle, servants, land. He returns his wife back. And I don't know if you guys caught that little bit of sarcasm from Abimelech to Sarah where he says, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of shekels. He is vindicating, I haven't touched you, your shame is covered, you are pure, and I'm showing you what they sacrificed of a thousand, put it this way, the max that you could pay for a bride in this time was 50 shekels of silver. 20 would be an ox. He gives a thousand to show her purity. He lavishes Abraham with gifts. And Abraham takes them. And where Abraham should have been a blessing to Abimelech, and you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Where he should have been a blessing, he was a curse. And where he should have gotten cursed for that, instead he gets a blessing, and ultimately so does Abimelech. God is faithful to his promises. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. This is the essence of grace. We get lavished with gifts we don't deserve because of God's working on our behalf. God worked and intervened with Abimelech through a dream. God works and intervenes in our lives through Christ and lavishes us with grace. All of us, all of us deserve wrath. All of us are like Abraham, have misrepresented God to everybody. But like Abraham, we may all receive grace. We may all receive grace 
How? Abimelech had a command, return the man's wife. We have a command, return to Christ. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and draw near to Jesus so that he will pray for you and so that you will live. Because if he had not returned Sarah, the promise of God is you will die. That's the same promise to us. If we reject Christ, friend, I don't know who you are. I don't know what your life is. If you reject Jesus, if you reject him, you will die. But if you turn, you come to him, he will pray for you and you will live. That's the gospel applied to Abraham. This is the big idea, the covenant curse of God, you will die, can be averted by the intercessory prayers of his appointed prophet. In this case, Abraham. In our case, Jesus. Come to Christ today. Trust him. Return to him. And he always lives to intercede on behalf of his people for their good. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus. We thank you, Father, that the gospel is applied to us not because of what we do, because we are so often like faithless Abraham. We thank you that the gospel is applied to us by your sheer grace that comes to us in Christ. And Lord, we know that Jesus is even now interceding on our behalf to mediate that grace to us, standing in the gap between God and men, Lord. If there is any here that don't know or believe or trust Jesus, may you draw them this morning, Father. If there are any, as they are, if we are struggling like Abraham with walking in darkness, with walking in lies and deceit, Lord, may you draw us to walk in light and see and taste and see that you are good. You mean good for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.